Thanks. And here we are. Welcome. Ah. Did you get it? All right, we're live. All right. We're running. Good. Uh, we're running too. That's a week after Lent. How's your Lent been? It has. One weekend. It is slow going. Actually, I don't think so. It's already Thursday, week one. So the second Sunday of Lent is already on the horizon. So I, I think at this point, it's moving pretty steadily. But yes, the sacrifice sting is just now starting oh, to yeah. set in. You know, it, it, a it, weekend it, and you're like, man. Sunday was my day. Sunday was the day when I was at home. I was like, oh, my sacrifice. Because mm -hmm. uh, so I was pre I was like gravitating in that direction, and then it was a no, I can't do it. What do people say? What do you say to people? When they say, "Do Sundays count? Do we fast on feast?" Well, on I'm not. Uh, I'm not legalistic about it. I think technically you could break the fast on Sunday. I think technically you could, but uh, I just decided to go the full six weeks. That's that's just my part of my discipline. If you count the Sundays, it's 46 days that's right. of Lent. And uh, you, what, what did that mean? Did you partake on Sunday? I did not. Okay. But, yeah, why not, uh, Father? Well, first, because it was not even five days into Lent. It seemed pretty weak for me. <laughs> I'm going to jump into my, uh, you know, what I've given up. and <laughs> yeah. Nice glass of red wine on a Sunday. Um, or whatever. Yeah. So I did a little video on this for the, the other people, uh, whoever, on the flock note, flock note, flock. So my little video shorts are going out. So we did one on uh, that very question. Mm -hmm. So oh, you did? do you feast or fast on Sundays in Lent? Question mark. So we well, basically said the answer is yes and no, or really <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it depends was what I, uh, I read a nice little article on that. But, but technically speaking, the Sundays are solemnities of the Lord's resurrection. They are not. Days of fasting and absence. They're Sundays, period. So they're not, they don't ever have that character of fasting or fee or abstinence. But we also fast from the uh, Gloria. We are liturgically having a little fast with, with some, with the solemnity that's usually at Mass, but uh, in the, the A word, the Allah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which we're not allowed to say. <laughs> so we'd be struck down. They, uh, anyhow, so. The, the issue is what are you what what's underlying the desire to go do relax your fast or your absence what you're doing on Sunday so um, if trying to break a bad habit then breaking it intermittently through Lent may not be helpful spiritually mm -hmm. but if you're at an anniversary party the example of a 50th wedding anniversary for your grandparents then they're having cake and you gave up sweets and you gave up bread or whatever it was or snacks and you're at the, the gathering. Well, I mean, we're all gathering to have some cake. And okay, well, I suppose one could decide, relax that penance on Sunday for Lent. But then also the days that are characteristic of fast and or abstinence are Fridays. So in Lent, they're obligatory days of abstinence from meat. But the, the, day, the days of fasting and abstinence are already set by the church. And there's only two of them, Ash Wednesday and Good mm -hmm, Friday. Mm -hmm. So those are already in place. So those are the only two days where we're obliged by the church to, to fast right. and abstain. Again, the church gives us the bare minimum. It's sort of the, the kindergarten basic training level. This is where if you want to give it a go, you have to at least do these things. So the idea is we shouldn't just make Ash Wednesday and Good Friday days of fast and absence in our entire Christian life. We should have other days or we're doing that or inviting that into our lives. So that's what Lent's about, is to wake us up to the three disciplines of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, which should be part of our lives all the time. And they're really probably not, if we're honest about it. Well, so, about me. 
<laughs> so anyhow, so I'm always fast fasting and, and I'm always giving. Yeah. Gosh, you can joking. fast and abstain, fast and abstain on Fridays of Lent if you choose, but abstinence on Fridays throughout the year is still something that we are asked to do throughout the year by the bishops. So it's just we're not abstaining. That is a myth, isn't it? We think we don't have to do anything on Fridays except during Lent. Right. It's not it's, true. It's not true. So it used to be meat was obligatory abstinence every Friday for the whole year. And then they, they relegated it to Lent. Mm -hmm. So, but Fridays are the remembrance of the Lord's Passion. Just like Sunday is always remembrance of the Lord's Resurrection. It doesn't matter the, the season we're in. So Fridays are always uh, remembrance of the Lord's Passion. So there should be some sacrifice. And I think one of the reasons why they got rid of the meat sacrifice was because it wasn't as penitential as it once had been. The meat and fish already available. And people say, well, I, I never eat meat on Fridays. And uh, delicious fish dinners and sushi and I mean it's which is great it's fine but I, the reality is is it's not is it really even penitential anymore for certain people and and the, the dietary needs of the human person today are Lord have mercy I mean there's right. a million different dietary things that people have wor to worry about now and you know gluten free and no gluten and I'm going to just do meat or I'm not going to do meat or I'm vegan or so the church is saying yeah you figure it out. For yourself so we're not relegating it the way we used to but you need to um, so if someone else might be like your pants might be eat red meat we're <laughs> sure yes you know but if uh, you don't if you if you abstain from meat you're still obliged on fridays to do some kind of penance throughout the year right yeah and that's so that's, that's where, where a lot where, of people yeah. like giving up the alcohol that was suggested by the bishops in the Whenever they made that change at the USCCB. Oh, I, I did not was, know that. So they actually recommended it giving up. Yeah, yeah, they did because that was more of a luxurious, that's more of a luxurious thing in life mm -hmm. to have, you know, money to spend on alcohol. Right. Because it's not a necessity at all. And it's always for enjoyment and mm -hmm. social socialization. Where meat is, is just, it's not as penitent because in the past meat was hard to find or hard to get in centuries before. So, Boy, when you had meat, it was such a, it was, wow, this is wonderful. This is always a treat. Right. So now it's, it's really not the case. So is it really that penitential? So you got to find, uh, Dr. John Bergsma recently said, you got to find the, the Goldilocks oh, level golden of, of, of the, uh, it's not too hard, not too easy, whatever we're choosing, but well, just right. enough to, to tweak our souls uh, to be more aware of, of the Lord and, Living their lives. Well, I know on Friday evening, I felt the fast, even though I'm staying from meat, because it seems to be the case that when I am uh, fasting from meat, let's just say, and I'm watching the news or, or some show, all I see is commercials for like these hamburgers, you know, and they're, <laughs> right. they're big, big and juicy. <laughs> I'm like, you got any tuna yeah. left? Tuna. <laughs> So I go and open up my can of tuna. <laughs> that's good. That's nice. Yes, that's a yes, nice and a can of tuna is that's probably a penitential way to, to have fish during less right. you know, that's not the not the, the delicious uh, you know, blackened cod or tilapia with No, it's just straight tuna red out of lobster, a can. Just drain biscuits. the water and just here we go. <laughs> Good. There you go. That's the spirit. So anyhow, yes. whatever. But, you know, so today we're recording on a special day. So what we're going to do, it's another uh, primer, primer. I never know how to say that word. I like primer uh, because- Primer. Primer, I, I, I say, are you trying to say primer? 
Oh, okay. I think it's Primer, though. Is it? I, I do. I think it. I think it might be Primer. Whatever. Is this like it's another scheduling? one of those uh, public service announcements about Catholics. We need to be Catholic again. So today is a great feast day, right smack dab in Lent. In Lent, what day is it? Today is the feast of the chair of Saint Peter. Which seems so funny to say, isn't it? The it feast is of the chair. The chair, a piece of furniture. <laughs> that's right. So the the thing that he sat in. Yes. So that's what they we say we have in a reliquary of of the chair, which is uh, bronze. I think it's bronze sculpture by Bernini. Mm. I don't think I've ever seen that sculpture. You probably have. No, oh, by the way, we got John. So our we have oh. our, our staff member John. You can't see him, but he's here. Because uh, he wants to make sure that the sound and the quality is excellent. So he's over there, and he's making faces at us. He's sleeping, actually. He's sleeping and nodding off. But maybe what John could do is maybe, uh, I don't know, can, could, does he have the power to do this during the recording? Because I don't want to ask him to do something that right now he's not able to do, but uh, to bring up that image. Because I've not seen this. Oh, the, bird, the, sculpture, yeah. the sculpture. We could probably put that in there, John. That's probably good. So yes. you've probably seen that Holy Spirit window. There's, no, there's really no stained glass in St. Peter's Basilica. Except this one image of the Holy Spirit dove, which, if I showed it to you, you go, oh yeah, I've seen that image. It's just it's the colored uh, orange uh, glass, red glass, and then there's a dove. And then underneath that image is that is this big sculpture, this throne. It's a big chair, and it's being held up by or other statues, uh, all of them are doctors of the church. I believe St. Augustine, St. Ambrose, St. Athanasius, and St. John Chrysostom. Which they actually go, those are all bishops too. That's true. So so there they are, not sitting on the throne, mm -hmm. but holding it up. They're there. They're right. What are they doing? They're in, they're in union with that chair. They're right next to that chair. Yes. From that chair. And so you got the Holy Spirit there right above the throne, which is the empowerment of the apostolic mission of the church. And so we celebrate the chair of St. Peter today, which in that sculpture apparently is the relic of whatever the chair, what's left of it, that is supposedly the chair that St. Peter had been using to sit in and teach and um, exercise his authority. Where did this, where did this uh, tradition of the chair come from? Well, I think it goes back to the the gospel for today, of course, is Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we could probably just, I guess, read it for those who weren't at Mass today. We can read a couple of verses. You know, but uh, so he's in Caesarea Philippi. This is Matthew 16, 13 and following. Uh, Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And here comes a big line, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and wherever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Wherever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So this is the the great confession mm -hmm. that Peter has the one who identifies Christ. Not because he was smart, but because God gave him the charismatic knowledge of who Jesus Christ was. The yep. Father in heaven, Jesus says, my Father has revealed this to you, not flesh and blood, not earthly knowledge, not some other rabbinical teaching. Yep. 
So I was thinking also the chair. It wasn't there. There was a tradition even in Judaism of the chair. That's right. I was going to uh, mention yeah. that today and forgot about it, actually the chair of Moses. The chair of mm -hmm. Moses, and we have to understand that in the ancient times when a rabbi taught, he sat down. Where we're used to seeing someone like you, the priest, at the ambo, right, standing up. But in those days, it was that you would sit down. Jesus would sit down. He went up the mountain and had the crowd sit right. and sat down, and he sat down. And of course, chair comes from, we get the, the Latin word cathedra, uh, where we get cathedral, which the chair, cathedra, the chair, means uh, the chair for the bishop. The bishop of Rome is the pope. And then all the, all the bishops have their cathedral, which they have their cathedra, which is usually an ornate throne liturgical shaped chair of some kind that matches or is ornate. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's very clear that this is only for the bishop to sit in and to preside from. And is that why the bishop sits down when he preaches? Uh, it's recommended, I think, probably in the the ritual for bishops uh, that so they sit in the chair. chair. Yeah, sure. So, and there might be there might be some rituals where I think at priest ordinations maybe that they are seated for different points uh, when they ordain the men and when they make the promises, the bishop seated. So there are times I think liturgy where the bishop must sit. Uh, to show that that teaching authority. And the mitre, of course, is also the sign of the great teaching authority that flows to that the bishop. The long hat mm -hmm. thing. The pointed yes. hat. The, the, that's, you love my imagery, right? The yeah, long, the long, is that the long big, hat that's thing? The biggest yeah. mitre I've ever seen, but <laughs> is that a kite? Um, so I thought it was also a representation of or symbol of the Holy Spirit, the tongues of fire. Sure. Mm -hmm. Is that um, also that? Okay. That, so I wasn't uh, wrong that. Okay. Well, I, I, it sounds right. We'll go with it. Okay, good. Someone can put in the comment box if we're not right. But, um, so yes, the the chair is the sign of teaching authority. That's the idea. The 22nd of February is, I guess, the traditional date where this happened. This he was in the district of Caesarea Philippi, where this occurred. So I believe this is sort of the the nativity of the chair, the birth of the chair of Peter. Well, we were there last year. We were there well, on the 22nd, the 22nd but <laughs> it, it, was, it was just a week and a half before, though. We were there in the middle of, of February. Well, if you go to Caesarea Philippi, I mean, it's not much there, but you see this large rock wall edifice there. Huge. I mean, it's, it just mm -hmm. looks like it's been hewn almost. <clears throat> and uh, you'll see the still ancient, um, what, what are they called? They're not shrines. Um, now they're kind of etched into the rock, like little altars. There's yeah, a, pagan there's, altars. Right? Yeah, they're pagan altars. To Pan, right? To Pan. But I was trying to think of the name of what those those carvings really are called. Uh, it'll come to me after we, done, after we finish with this podcast. But nevertheless, if that was the place, it would be fitting because I call you the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And right before you is this giant, massive, massive rock. Yeah. rock. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was there was a lot going on at this rock, wasn't there? Pagan worship. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a big hole in, yes. in the edifice there, about eight hundred feet deep and five hundred yeah, feet wide. It looks wide. like a giant mouth in that rock wall. Yes, and it looked like I mean, when you look at it, you might think, "Is that the gate to hell?" Right. Because they believed that the the underworld, the Hades, this was where Hades was located, just mm -hmm. through that big black hole literally and so right didn't they they would throw their goats animal sacrifices throw them into that mouth of the mountain to uh appease the god pan yeah and it was a province of tiberius caesar so uh caesarea oh excuse me um uh, philip so it was uh it was a roman province which which was given to herod well uh philip 
Caesarea Philippi. Yeah, so uh, one of the tetrarchs of uh, of the Herod dynasty. So that's where this happened. It's the context of who who people say that I am. Right. I also think you're not that even what you are. You are. There's only one God. Is what that what Peter yes. was saying too? Is that there is you are the Christ, the Son of Living God. Period. No, there's no other God besides you. And think, there's all these other gods. These yes that are being worshipped wrongly and erroneously, and it, it puts that all. Puts that all to bed, as it were. Yes. I also think that when by calling Peter Rock, there's a lot of temple imagery there. I know that uh, within the Holy of Holies, based on what I have uh, studied before, that in the, the interior of the Holy Holies, the uh, the Ark of the Covenant rested on a rock. And that rock was, was kind of the foundation stone of the entire temple. Mm-hmm. Um, where Solomon built, right? Yes. And, and that's where the priest made his uh, yearly sacrifice. And so by calling Peter the Rock... Um, that is a way of Jesus saying I, the, the temple is going to be transferred from Mount Moriah, where it is now, onto you, Peter. You're going to be the foundation stone of this new temple that I am building um, for you. So I, I think we miss some of the some of the temple imagery as well. And you think about the Muslim mosque that's there now in mm-hmm. place, the one we always see with the, the, the golden, golden dome. dome. Yeah. What do we call it? The Dome of the Rock. So the the place where the temple once stood. Right. So that rock that also, uh, from Jewish uh, theology, the rock was the plug over the shaft from hell, right? Uh, the rock was a cap, like a cork in a bottle okay. on a wine that, that, that the, the temple on the rock was one big cork that, that you know, shut off the, uh, the, the underworld. Okay. Sheol. Okay, so that's what my understanding. I've seen a diagram on that. that that's interesting. That was the that was the theology there. Yeah. That the rock actually prevents and stops the um, the underworld from erupting. So, why do you think this feast day is important? Why are we talking about it? And what does the church always want us to recall on this day once a year? The authority of the of the Pope. I mean, that ultimately the chair is about teaching authority. You taught from the chair. You presided from the chair. Uh, it was it was a sign of great authority. So, the supreme authority uh, resides with the Roman Pontiff. And so today we remember the importance of the Magisterium because as Catholics we have we have three areas that that help us live our faith and know what's true, and that's sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the Magisterium, which is the the teaching office of the Church. The Magisterium is is unique. This isn't. This isn't anyone who's Catholic who teaches anything is always right. It means that there are theologians that that aid the church, and there are there are many ways in which the faith is communicated to the church. But the official teachings, the magisterial teachings, magisterium coming from magister, which is teacher. This is this is Christ's authority to teach in His name, given to the Pope and the bishops and you with Him. So that's the magisterium, um, and all teaching that coincides with that is is official in the sense that it's promoting what's what's already being taught and helping explain what's being taught right which is important um i was under the, the assumption many years ago that the pope fabricated doctrine that's not true no the magisterium cannot make up doctrine it only can interpret what has been already been passed down to them right. and to us yeah and that's a good uh Point to bring up from the catechism. There's a little uh, paragraphs 85 through 87 talk about the magisterium of the church. 
It says the task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of sacred tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. This means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the Bishop of Rome. And then it continues, yet the magisterium is not superior to the Word of God, but is its servant. It teaches only what has been handed on to it. At the divine command and with the help of the Holy Spirit, it listens to this devotedly, guards it with dedication, and expounds it faithfully. All that it proposes for belief as being divinely revealed is drawn from this single deposit of faith, which is the Word of God, meaning sacred tradition and sacred scripture. So sacred tradition existed first, the sacred scripture, the written Word of God, or the Word of God in written form, which is the Bible, came centuries later from the church through its magisterial teaching and interpretation of what books were canonical, meaning which ones were divinely inspired, all that came from the church. So the Bible did not exist for the first few centuries of Christianity. They didn't have a Bible that they could open up and say, here it all is. So that's been given by the church. So in the sacred tradition is also in reference to John 21, 25, where uh, at the end of the Gospel of John, he says, there are many other things that Jesus did and said, which are not written in this book. And if they were to be written down, I do not think that all the books in the world could contain them. And even Thomas Aquinas affirms it also saying that if, if, they were, if the world was in existence for another 100,000 years and books were written every day about what Jesus did, it still wouldn't be enough because no, no one can contain all that the word, which is Jesus, said and did because he's God. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, I don't quite know how to phrase this, but we know like with the sacraments, this is a work of God. The Eucharist is Christ himself, the person. All the other sacraments are, are means through which God communicates his graces to us. Oh, yeah, we get all that. For some reason, and I'm going to phrase this wrongly, it's not going to say what I really wanted to say, is that when it comes to the Pope, for us in the 21st century, this is one of the most supernatural. I mean, it really requires great faith on our part to believe what this office of the Pope is capable of doing and has been right. charged with doing. That's I mean, it just, I don't know, it just kind of, it, it strains credulity for, for us in this day and age um, that this office has that much authority over us because we're postmodern. Whether we like it or not, we are, we are conditioned to resist authority, to be suspicious of authority. Mm -hmm. And to look at everything with this kind of uh, mistrust, what's what's the real motive going on here? But yet this office that Christ established, well, you've really got to believe um, that what Jesus said is true. Right. Yeah, I, 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 it's a matter of faith. I mean, all of that we're learning from Scripture and the magisterium, I mean, even that the magisterium is able to interpret Scripture and tradition is a matter of faith. Yeah, I think I love the point drawn that it was Peter among the apostles who had all been with him. He was like them, but it was Peter who says, you're the Christ, you're the one, the Son of God, and that there was on Peter a special charism to know Jesus. Right. To him alone, that was granted. To him alone. Right. So it wasn't, if Peter didn't say anything, well, John would probably have jumped in. No, that's not or, what would have happened. I know, but that's, a, that's saying is that, that they didn't know. Right. They didn't know the articulation, the great confession that Peter was going to give. Because Jesus says right after that, you did not come up with this on your own. Right. My Father in heaven has revealed this to you. Right. So it was a supernatural knowledge sure. 
Uh, so the you have to believe that the next pope and the pope after the pope, they all possess that supernatural charism to know the mind of Christ to a degree that no one else can. And that's faith to believe what you just said. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like this really strains credulity. No. So I think that's good to say that we it's we're, when we struggle, we say, I know this is a matter of faith. This is where we, we, we have to trust what the Lord's doing and and say, well, what about these scoundrel popes or these 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 right. historical times where it seems that uh popes aren't leading well or uh what are they what are they doing or what are they saying uh, should we trust what's happening so the answer is faith would say yes that's right and not only yes but receive everything with docility that's the other oh yeah to, from the catechism there this is much further on in the catechism when it talks about uh, other uh, other ways to look at the magisterium 20 paragraph 2034 the P roman pontiff and the bishops are authentic teachers that is teachers endowed with the authority of christ so again this is all matters of faith like why are they different from everybody else in the church from theologians and scripture scholars the pope and the bishops are authentic teachers of the faith with the authority of christ who preached the faith to the people entrusted to them what faith is that that they're preaching the faith to be believed and to put into practice. Okay, so what am I to believe and how am I to practice my faith? The Pope and bishops are there to deliver that to us. It's just, okay, that's a lot of faith to believe that, but it's it's not, well, whoever I like to listen to, it's, well, the, they're, these are the men ordained to do this by their office as bishops. They're all bishops because even the Pope is a bishop yes, of Rome. Yes, that's right. Uh, so then it says the ordinary and university magisterial, ordinary and universal magisterium with the Pope and the bishops is in communion with him. So that's another key. The bishops have to be in communion with the Pope to exercise their magisterial authority. Uh, in communion with him, teach the faithful the truth to believe, the charity to practice, and the beatitude to hope for. And then 2037, the law of God entrusted to the church is taught to the faithful in the way of life and truth, the faithful therefore have a right to be instructed in the divine saving precepts that purify judgment and with grace heal wounded human reason. So we need purification of our judgment and grace, our human reason needs to be healed. So we need to be taught because we don't get it right. right. And then the Christians faithful all have a duty of observing the constitutions and the decrees conveyed by the legitimate authority of the church, even if they concern disciplinary matters. I want to, mention, I want to speak yeah, about that. These determinations call for docility and charity. So that last piece is so important. What are, what's our response when decrees and constitutions and anything official, any official teaching from the magisterium is delivered by the hand of the Pope himself or his representatives? One of docility and in charity. So an openness to be taught to learn, which is docility, which is a gift of the Holy Spirit, and charity, charitable. Right. I mean, I think I want to bring up to that point. It's it's not, this is from, uh, I remember from paragraph 25 in Lumen Gentium. This is from Vatican II. Right. We've spoken about Vatican I uh, in the past. Maybe you could bring up some sentences there about, because they really define the role and they define the limits of, of the Pope's authority, which there are no limits uh, in the church. But it says here that um, except for divine law, I mean, that's, well, well, he of course, yeah, he right. but he has supreme law. authority mm -hmm. over the church, Absolutely. supreme. But that 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 saying he can't change divine law is really saying, but that's the, that's the expanse of his authority. It's it's vast. <laughs> yeah. Yes, but here, even in uh, Lumen Gentium, paragraph twenty-five, 
that uh, this religious submission, now it goes on to speaking about the bishop's teaching authority, and that we are to submit to the bishop's teaching authority. And then it says, uh, this religious submission of mind and will must be shown in a special way to the Roman pontiff, even when he is not speaking ex cathedra. That is, it must be shown, shown in such a way that his supreme magisterium is acknowledged with reverence and the judgments made by him are sincerely adhered to according to his manifest mind and will. And you'll know his manifest mind and will in the matter uh, from either the character of his documents, from his frequent repetition of the same doctrine, or from his manner of speaking. So this is not just, well, the Pope hasn't spoken from the chair, because we do. We, maybe we should just clarify that. There is the speaking from the chair, but Vatican II, an ecumenical document, magisterial, it's not just when he's speaking ex cathedra. Uh, cathedra. So yes, the, t- the, the, the time where the Pope has done that, where he speaks from the chair, teaches, declares from the chair, ex cathedra, is often the interpretation that I learned probably a lot of Catholics have wrongly associated with how the Pope works too. It's just, well, unless he does that, then there's, they don't pay attention to anything. Well, we remember that one priest said that we owe him zero allegiance. Right. Or, or, yeah. or, the, or the Protestants would say that, that he doesn't have authority to just, or he just sits in that, he just makes up these dogmas and, and you know, boom, he just decides to make a change. But in the history of the church, that's not what's happening. So, the only time the Holy Father has ever spoken ex cathedra, meaning just from the chair, without convoking a, uh, a council, council. Mm-hmm. of any kind, was two Marian dogmas. The first was the Immaculate Conception, which I think was Pius IX in 1854. Mm-hmm. And Mary's Immaculate Conception, meaning she was conceived without original sin by a provenient grace, is to be held and believed by all Catholics as dogma. Period. That's. And again, this isn't a new teaching. It was believed sure. by, and spoken and taught about by church fathers and debated over the centuries. And then in that time period, the Pope, remember, this is 1854. That's the first time there's ever been a, a, a recorded ex cathedra mm-hmm. pronouncement for a new dogma. Or, you know, a new and dogma Pope- basically preserving something that we believe, the faithful have already believed and held as true. And it's, it's now it has that protection of being dogma that this isn't this is a non-negotiable now and forever. Amen. You can't. We're not. It's no longer a matter of debate. Yeah. And then the other one was in 1952. 1950. Or, 1950. Right. Sorry. In uh, Avedisimus. I can't pronounce it. No. No, not with me. Maleficent. No. Can't remember the Latin part. Anyway, the Pius XII yes. uh, spoke ex cathedra about the assumption, assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Body but the popes, all, they, they, they surveyed their bishops before they made any action. Is this something that we should do? And then he says, is this something the faithful want? And of course, the faithful had it. They did uh, offer their, their insight. So again, even in these two occasions, although it was from the chair, which means it's Jesus speaking. Right. Basically, it is the Lord saying, this is true and it must be believed. Um, they did not just, two, they just, he, they did, he did not wake up one month and say, I think by the end of next, this month, I'm yeah. going to go ahead and pronounce this dogma. Sure. And then, then the, the, uh, assumption dogma was, uh, was preempted by 8 million petitions from the faithful yes. writing Rome. Yes. Uh, to declare this 
Yeah, and there are petitions underway now for a fifth Marian dogma, and I think over 10 million petitions. I need to look. I know it's millions of petitions. Sure. And what is the fifth Marian dogma? It is that uh, Mary is the mother, the spiritual mother of all peoples, and is the co-redemptrix, mediatrix of all graces, and advocate. Mm-hmm. So uh, there are those who are who are pushing for that as the natural consequence of all of the four pro- previous dogmas. Kind so, of wrapping it all so up. So the the, Ho- the Holy Father would be listening to these and reviewing. Well, you can these, write a letter to him but, today. But that doesn't mean well. We don't want to. The interpretation isn't just oh, if there's just Correct. enough enough letters because we don't like have the we, charism like we do. Um, petitions like we'll just petition and get enough people to sign the petition and then they they won't uh they won't build a road through this part of town you know kind of thing that's how our american mind so this is not how it works but the holy father may be encouraged by the holy spirit to listen to the voice of the faithful in that particular way yes but it's not let's vote on it and then okay looks like everybody's this is majority rules so i'll just go out there and uh and go ahead and proclaim this sure but what does it mean then Okay, so it's it's not just when he's speaking from the chair; it's in other situations of course, right. when he is revealing his judgment uh, on a matter. Um, what what do you what, like? Give us an example of what that might mean with our current pope, for instance. I mean, judgment on on any matters. So he's obviously very concerned about the climate. Okay, so judgment that there should be national endeavors throughout the globe to to address the concerns that he has voiced in his in his writings. So if I'm someone uh, that thinks that is a political issue um, and I'm sensitive to it as a result, but the Pope is manifesting his mind and will, then my responsibility as a Catholic is to get to where he is. Right. To understand why is he speaking so much about this? Uh, because if we, our faith would say the Holy Spirit is leading him to speak about the climate, about creation, about caring for creation that God has entrusted us to be caring for. Mm-hmm. And the, it's been politicized. But, it's, but it's he been, even acknowledges But abortion's that. been politicized. Sure. I mean, all these issues that are political issues have been politicized, but they're all part and parcel of our Catholic faith. So what he's been doing, which is being missed, is the the lack of care for creation is endemic because there's also a lack of care for the, the unborn. I don't care about the child in the womb. I don't care about the child in the womb that's going to be born, nor what condition the uh, creation is going to be, and when they when they receive it. So, the care for the for creation is also I care about my brothers and sisters who are unborn, who are coming after me, who are inheriting what we leave. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, because we speak, and the issue might be because there's less Catholic voice in that space of caring about creation and the climate. Then it gets politicized, and then you have people saying, "Well, this is a leftist issue," and "Oh, this is a you know people like, who are against abortion are on the right." They say, "Well, Catholicism is always about the whole, so you're going to find something on the, the uh, sin of abortion in the Catechism, and also the importance of we have a responsibility to care for creation in the Catechism." So these are all parties. Yeah, uh, and so you look at that as. It's a judgment. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's and not then, speaking ex cathedra on, on this. I mean, but the, that synod, is a manif- the synod has gotten a lot of uh, ink spilled on. Well, I was going to bring debating, up that. De- debating, the debating. Synod. Why do you have lay people there? It's just bishops. They should vote. And why is, they're all sitting around a table mixed up with lay faithful and religious uh, men and women. This doesn't seem the way, the way it was before. Yes, so he has decided to conduct a synod in a different way. That seems to be not the way other synods have been uh, convening. But it's over a long period of time. But it seems that the trajectory of the synod is still the same. 
the conversations have been synthesized. He will review them. And then 20, 2024, another, 2025, 2025, the, he will write uh, usually an apps letter or a, uh, on the synod where he will then pronounce judgments on what he has learned or heard or whatever. And that so we, will direct the church. Right. So we don't know what that is right now, but the, that was the thing. Because they're going to be voting, they're going to be changing church teaching. All this thing happened. Well, nothing happened except several days of listening sessions, which people might think aren't valuable. But but synodality has been part of the Catholic Church for for centuries, and the Holy Father is trying to revive this um, charism of the church, and so that's making people nervous. But a lot of what we're nervous about is something we just don't understand. Mm-hmm. If we studied um, the importance of synods again, they're not. Oh, the synod's different than the other synods. Okay. He has authority to do that. He can say, I would like to do a synod with the lay people there and listen to what they have to say. I want the voice of the faithful to be more expansive. And I want their input. It's basically, there wasn't, and the voting was on the synthesis of what they said, not on, well, let's change. Remember, over and over, they keep saying, we're not dealing with doctrine. We're not dealing with doctrine. We're not dealing with changing church teaching. Over and over. And did anything change? No. It is I mean, I mean I'm change. just saying. Right, I'm just, right. So... But it's the practice, really, yeah, it's the. I think we're confusing the practice with the doctrine itself. And the other thing is the 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 Pope is you know the, the other popes was how many how many cardinals in the College of Cardinals? There's always a limit, right? Who can change the limit on the College of Cardinals? The Pope, and they have not just Francis, but others. And, and sure. Today, there's more cardinals, but the other issue is, but people need to understand he's making more cardinals from other areas of the globe that never had a cardinal before. Because the church is all over the globe. And, and it's so, not Western anymore. It's not no, Western-centric. Yeah. It's so, going all over the so world. So the reality is <laughs> it can be as many cardinals as he wants in the College of Cardinals. Well, that's not fair. Okay. But well, Vatican I says he has supreme jurisdiction over the, the governance of the church. Who is church law? The Pope is a well, supreme legislator. Uh, you know? Part of other his judgments is I think where we get confused is that uh, we think he's changing doctrine. But I know he's very heavy on uh, pastoral theology and pastoral care. He calls the priests and the bishop right. to be theologians to their people um, in a regular situations, in all kinds of circumstances that you cannot just use an objective church teaching and whack somebody over the head with it. Uh, you're going to have to engage right. them. You can't change the objective teaching of the church. We die for that. Um, Christ has given that to us. But you got to, you priests, you got to do some work. And discern. Uh, and discern with so these the people, next yeah. example would be the decree on the nature of blessings. Right. So this was a judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, and a magisterial teaching. Well, it became magisterial. But my, I guess my point is that his judgment is, is that we have to care about the person to help bring them to the objective teaching. That's a judgment that he said over and over again. Our responsibility is not to say, I disagree, I disagree. It is according to Vatican II. No, you've got to submit to this. You have you've to, got to you accept this. You have to figure this. out the docility of how I'm to receive it. Yeah. Right. And, and the nature so of the, the problem is not yeah. the Pope, it's, it's us. Right. The decree, too, was not, there was never any statement in there that says, you must do blank. It, it said clearly what you shouldn't do with different blessings. We're not going to go into that. We've already had a podcast on that. Um, but I think the reality is, is just a receptivity. It was ultimately a guide for discernment for pastors mm-hmm. and priests in general. Mm-hmm. And uh, people say it wasn't necessary. Well, apparently it was because he wrote it. And, well, he didn't write it, write it. It was actually signed, but it was signed in his presence by um, Cardinal Fernandez. Was that right? Yes. So he's delegated to mm-hmm. do that. So there's a decree and, and the, the, it should be, we should not 
grab it, run into panic mode and say he's because the, the media is doing this all the time with their misrepresentation of what was really going on, saying, oh, he approved ritual blessings for same sex couples. And no, right. It didn't happen. So uh, the reality is, is just being more receptive to say we, we what the what the Holy Father has written and signed is of utmost importance for us most importance for us to to read and understand and clarify, which is where the bishops are key. And I've said this before, mm -hmm. we need the bishops to be more active in clarifying and helping us receive, right? To, to not let this be a, a, a vacuous space where the, the, the pontiff, something comes from Rome and then, then, you know, we don't hear clarification. So, I mean, our diocese had clarification within a couple of days from our, from our vicar general, of course, writing on behalf of, of the bishop as he, they're of one mind. So, but others, you wait for that clarification. And when that's not there, then the pastors are trying to figure it out. Yeah. I, think, so, I, I think one of the things that we, we think of supreme authority, um, we must submit our minds and intellects to his pronouncements, even when he's not speaking ex cathedra, uh, when he's speaking on faith, morals, and discipline and governments. To us, it sounds like, wow, this is, uh, this is unprecedented. It's unlike anything uh, I've ever experienced, which is true. It's a gift. Right. I mean, what I, what I keep thinking is like, wow, what a gift that we have someone who will keep us on the, on the, the narrow way to salvation, will never lead us astray. It is a great gift. Uh, to have this teaching authority, to know what the truth is right. and how God is guiding the church. I don't know if we always think of it as this supreme gift. But we'll just take the decree as an example. So the question is, Do you can a priest bless couples in a same-sex union? That's a question, a legitimate one, a big one that's taken years to study and learn about. So who's going to, everyone's going to have a different opinion on that. Who's going to answer that question? Who's going to answer, do you bless can you bless couples in same-sex unions? Can you bless these persons? Question mark. What about couples that are not married in the church, or they, they they've got two different unions, or they they've been divorced, you know, man and woman, and now they're in a second marriage, and it's 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 invalid too. They were married outside the church. They got kids. Can you bless them if they ask for a blessing? Right. And that's these are legitimate questions, which everybody on the planet in the Catholic Church and, and without is going to have an 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 answer. We think it's this, right? Well, guess what? The matter gets settled because the pontiff settles it. Because he's got the charism. Period. So, but I don't like that, or I think it's this way, or this, doesn't it seem like it's this? Well, study it because this is the answer. This is, and, and that's, that's the faith of, our faith would say, well, this is what it means to be in the Catholic Church, is that other denominations, right, are doing whatever they feel they ought to do. And you're, going you're a former, you're a former, yes, you're a yes, former yeah, Methodist. No, I've, I've always so, so believed So what, what has happened, and I think no people, magisterium just, is, 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 people need to step back and say what has happened is other Christian communities are having uh, marriages of same-sex couples, and the, they don't believe in divorce or whatever. It just doesn't matter. It's whatever uh, they the read, people the, agree they read the scriptures and apply it to the to the commonality of the faithful of that little location, and then there's the, the pastor, the leader, the whatever. They all just— Agree to do what they think is right. That's mm -hmm. why, in their own mind. So, as as the chair of Peter says, we we are. This is how we are moving forward with this. So the reality is, is no, you don't bless the union. No, you don't bless the sin. You don't bless 
If they ask for a blessing and it's blessing the sinful lifestyle, no. You know, when they ask for a blessing for health, a blessing for, uh, you can bless individuals. We bless individuals all the time. So that's taken, it's going to take time for catechesis and the dust to settle from the decree. But again, it's, but this is a very different, this is what Catholicism is about here. Yeah. And I also like how he's challenging the church to think uh, socially and globally, even about ecological issues. They usually, when we think of our sins, we think of our individual sins, mm-hmm. but there are collective sins that we can commit against each other um, and against creation. And he's getting the church to really think through what that might mean as well. You know, how do you confess a collective sin that we have all done together? All of this, though, is a gift. Right. I mean, what a joy. Speaking as a, as a, uh, a former Protestant, it is a gift to be anchored in the truth. And to know that the magisterium can never fail us. Right. We never may, may, there will be popes, I'm sure, in my lifetime whose personality I just will not pretty much care for. But I will never, I mean, by, by grace, I will never distrust the Holy Father. You know, I'm reminded of uh, St. Jose Escriva, Jose Maria Escriva. Mm-hmm. I remember he answered the question about this. And he says, we, we, we Catholics have four principal loves. Oh, here we go. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> The first love is Jesus, always Jesus. Second love, the Blessed Mother. Third, Joseph, St. Joseph. The fourth, the Pope. We love the Pope. And I think he even places that above family. I mean, these are our four yeah. principal loves. And, and if you love them well, yes. When you're when you like the, the, the man in the office, perhaps, and then and when you don't, and you don't But this is a saint speaking. Of course. Yeah. But I mean, let's but all the saints. Yes, would talk that way, right? I mean, you're you're going to read the saints; they love the, they love the Pope, pray with Pope, sacrifice for him. Uh, they they they, I've yet to find saints that were out there with uh, torch and, and and pitchfork in the streets, denouncing the Holy Father and let's let's go our way and this is the real way. They just wouldn't do that. I mean, I read I read bef- a few months ago. We read about Padre Pio. Oh, yes, right. And Padre Pio was totally wronged by the hierarchy of the church and under the Pope. He was basically put in uh, prison in his own monastery for many, many years. And the church relegated every movement of his life for several years. He couldn't have public mass, couldn't have spiritual directions anymore. People could not go visit him. He couldn't even, and it said he couldn't, he couldn't go to his window and look out and wave. So he had to even not do that. And did he stand up and reject that and say, what an atrocity, I'm being wrong? No, he never once complained. He took all of it, his obedience. Mm-hmm. And I say, you know, stigmata, amazing. He bilocated, he's an amazing saint, but I, I still, I, my opinion is his, his obedience was the amazing virtue for him, that, that he was so obedient to the church, even when the church was so hard on him and he was wrongly, he was misunderstood, wrongly accused, and he just uh, he just accepted it in yeah. obedience because uh, he said the will of the superiors is the will of God, and that was period for him. So, well, let's just give thanks for the magisterium. And right. speaking of loving the Pope, we'll end here. I'm going to bring up the words of Pope Pius X again. It's good to reflect on these yes. things. Can I can I use it? Go ahead. Started. Here's what Pope Pius X said in 1912 uh, at an allocution, which was an audience. When we love the Pope, there are no discussions regarding what he orders or demands or up to what point obedience must go. 
and in what things he is to be obeyed. When we love the Pope, we do not say that he hasn't spoken clearly enough, almost as if he were forced to repeat to the ear of each one the will clearly expressed so many times, not only in person, but with letters and other public documents. We do not place his orders in doubt, adding the facile pretext of those unwilling to obey that it's not the Pope who commands, but those who surround him. We do not limit the field in which he might and must exercise his authority. One does not oppose to the Pope's authority that of others, however learned those others might be, who differ from him. For however great their learning, they must be lacking in holiness, for there can be no holiness in dissension from the Pope. That's a great quote. St. Pius X, right? Well, I got this one too from, uh, since it's the chair of Peter, um, we can also, we can dovetail these together. This is St. Cyprian. Um, of Carthage. You end it with Cyprian. Cyprian, here here he goes. This is on Matthew 16, what we just heard earlier in the podcast. I tell you, Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. On Peter he builds the church, and to him he gives the command to feed the sheep. And although he assigns a like power to all the apostles, yet he founded a single chair, Cathedra, and he established by his own authority a source and an intrinsic reason for that unity. Indeed, the others were also what Peter was, apostles. But a primacy is given to Peter, whereby it is made clear that there is but one church and one chair. So too all the apostles are shepherds, and the flock is shown to be one fed by all the apostles in single-minded accord. If someone does not hold fast to this unity of Peter, can he imagine that he still holds the faith? If he should desert the chair of Peter upon which the church was built, can he still be confident that he is in the church? And that's the end of that. Yeah. So let us stay in union with Christ and union with the chair. And stay on the bark of Peter. Yeah. That's always in it. Now back to your fast, Father. <laughs> no, but thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening. And thank you. God bless you. Have a, a wonderful Lent. And don't forget Project Alms. That's right. And it's still underway. There's yep. still time to get on board. We had a great report. Over Everyone the can join. Anyone can give. Yeah. And uh, we, we've raised some, uh, by the generosity of the people through their sacrifices, we've already raised some good money. So mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to it. So get on board if you haven't had a chance to do that yet. Project Alms. Take care, everybody. God bless you. See you next time.